right, welcome back fellow jazz bums. Today we are continuing our interview uh, series. We have Kevin Gray with us, which we are super excited to have. Before we get into it, let's uh, remember to like and subscribe. We also live stream every Friday, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. We have a Jazz Bums Discord, so uh, uh, sign up and come hang out with us there. We also have a new threads. We have an Instagram. All that stuff is going to be linked in the description below. Come check us out. Um, and with that, I'm going to kick it over to Felipe to uh, go over Kevin's bio. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Welcome back, fellow Jazz Bums. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for your kind presence here on our show. My pleasure to be here. So, Kevin Gray, he's likely, if not the most popular, one of the most competent master engineers in the industry. He started age 18 in 1972 at Artisan Sound. He worked on many different companies and projects over the years. In 82, he officially started Coherent Audio, which became a studio finally in 2010-ish. Then uh, his all new tube recording system, nicknamed now as the Hackensack West, aiming to recreate the authentic sound of Golden Age. Involved in many audio files, if not most of all, uh, series from acoustic sounds to music matters to Blue Note now, and now his own studio. Um, Kevin, welcome, you award winner, engineer. Thank you so much for giving some time to us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So um, I'll start with a kind of first question or area of discussion. It's really around kind of your early start and relationship with music. So what can you tell us about like your first contacts with music and sound? Was it super, was it an early age? Um, what did you listen to? You know, what about that about sound led you into the recording industry? Well, that's kind of a long, uh, detailed thing, but to, to try to break it down as much as possible, I got interested in music and, and sound and electronics even at about the age of five. And I started, um, you know, getting my parents to buy me records and uh, don't ask me why, but one of the first things that really grabbed me was, was bullfight music, which was a big thing in the late fifties for a while, for a minute there. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had seen the movie around the world in 80 days, had that soundtrack and there was a bullfight scene in that. And I think that's what kind of got me interested in it anyway. So I had the audio fidelity, the brave bulls and the brave bulls volume two. So that, that was kind of my introduction to music. And then, of course, I had some of the Disney records and, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, if we fast forward a few years, about the time I was starting high school, um, I built my first component stereo system. That would have been in 1968. And um, I remember one of the first records I went out and bought was uh, Willie and the Poor Boys by uh, Creedence Clearwater. It had just been released. So um, I don't know. Does that answer the question? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean. So you would you you got into hi-fi early on then too, like as a, as a teenager. Yeah, what happened was I, I moved into a neighborhood and my next door a new neighborhood. My next door neighbor, who's nine years older than me, um, had a component stereo system with JBL studio monitors, Macintosh, you know, tube electronics, and and I'm listening to some of my albums on his stereo, and I'm hearing stuff I'd never heard either on my little silver toned you know, suitcase that opened up with the two speakers or my parents' Magnavox, which was basically a big boom box. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, that, that was a, a life changer for me. And that's what kind of led me to start working on building my first component stereo system. Yeah. Um, that just, uh, reminds me the, your, your mastering console and 
a lot of, I think your, your personal audio um, equipment is, is stuff that you've kind of crafted and developed. Um, is this coming from just an early age of being interested in electronics and, um, and learning about that and enjoying Exactly. Yeah. That? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, and how did you, did it, sorry, no, I was going to ask, so how, how did you land your first job in the industry? How, how, how did that happen? Well, I met a guy who moved into our neighborhood um, in 1969, January of 69, and that was Bob McLeod, who owned Artisan Sound Recorders, uh, one of the great unsung mastering engineers, in my opinion. And um, so, uh, you know, <laughs> long story again, but I, I was babysitting for his kids because I was the only kid in the neighborhood over the age of nine, you know, and so I was I was like 14 and so um, that's how I met him. And he said, hey, uh, well, I asked him, uh, he had this awesome stereo system. And I said, gee, what do you do? And he said, I'm in the industry. And Im immediately I'm thinking, oh, he sells audio equipment. Maybe I get a deal. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm a mastering engineer. And I said, oh, you must have a Scully lathe and a Westrix cutterhead. And he said, no, Neumann lathe, Neumann cutterhead. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so he said, would you like to come down and see my facility? And I said, sure. So I went down there and I walked in the door and I see, you know, his gleaming Ampex tape machines and, and the lathe and the cutter head. And he threads up a tape and he starts cutting an album. And I, at that instant, I knew that was what I wanted to do for a living. Everything else was, was just in my way of doing what I wanted to do between that and the time I graduated from high school. And then finally, when I graduated from high school, he hired me. I, I, I hung out down there every second I could get down there i i went down especially after i got my own car in my in my junior year um you know i, I was hanging out down at artisan certainly for christmas and and spring break and then summer vacations and uh you know within a couple of years i was making tape copies of master tapes for what they called international you know which were the, the tape copies that would go to other countries to cut the record all right um and so you know i learned all of the moves on the console and and how to do all of that pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um, and then he started giving me tips and, and, and asking me, you know, what do you think this, this needs, you know, and we would discuss that. And, and so he imparted his knowledge on, on how to cut a record sonically, um, to me. And, and I learned that basically from him. I, I give him all the credit for learning that. Oh, that is so cool. That brings, um, up, that brings up an interesting question to me that I've thought about in the past. So like back in the seventies, eighties, when everything was getting cut to records, right. Mm -hmm. Was it normal to use the actual master tape to cut? Oh the yeah, okay. always. always. Really? I mean, okay. the only time we would make a copy was if there were some really crazy moves and lots of them. You know, um, mm. you could usually write down in the notes how to make, you know, a level or an EQ change. Um, every once in a while, I mean, you know, I can think of maybe I could probably count them on one hand the mm. ones that we had to make copies of to cut. Well. So the copy would have that corrected or? Prepared? Yeah, it would have all, all the level and EQ changes. And okay. so then you could cut the copy flat. Yeah, international pressings were copy from copies generally. Well, sometimes they actually ship. Uh, we, we ship lacquers to Europe. Okay. So it depended uh, on the company and the project and the size of the project. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it all depended on basically on the record company. Interesting. Is there any concern about degradation of lacquers? I know that has been a topic of interest previously, but it, it, is that, um, was there any concern about shipping those? Well, I'm still doing it because a lot of the plants, you know, are in Europe, like optimal, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I always say that if you can get them there within 72 hours, you're probably fine. Okay. And that's usually what we shoot for. Mm-hmm. And they all know that they're coming in advance, so they hopefully get them in the tank processing mm-hmm. quickly. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a concern, but it's a concern that I have no control over. You know? right, yeah. I had um, just a side question since we're talking about the lacquer. Um, sure. I, you know, I've, I've watched a numerous amount of videos uh, of your studio and the cutting piece uh, from like Joe Harley's Instagram and, mm-hmm. and some other um, video on YouTube. Uh, it's always cutting a 12 inch disc. Um, right. And I was just curious, the, the idea of doing like a seven inch, like I believe you did this one for Sam. Is it essentially the same thing? It's just the, the lacquer is, is smaller or do you have to worry about any cutout of the center or anything like no. that? It, okay. Well, lacquer lacquers masters are always cut on oversized lacquers so a 12 inch is actually cut on a 14 inch disc oh. i don't know if you can tell that from the video but yeah right. it's, it's an oversized disc because you have to make a test cut on the outside edge and then they need that space around the lead-in groove for separating the metal part from the lacquer and all these things so that it doesn't get damaged so a seven inch record is cut on a 10 inch disc. oh right okay. wow. yeah and the, and the center punch out or whether it's a small hole that's that, that that all happens down the road. That has nothing okay. to do with the cutting. Okay. Got it. Interesting. That is really cool. All right. So next question. Um, you're often asked about your recent work, uh, but can you take a moment and talk about some of your projects from the eighties and nineties? Um, because you did a uh, start coherent in 82 um, and any of the learnings from, from those decades? Well, 82, uh, was not mastering. I didn't really start mastering under the coherent name until the end of 2010. Um, so 82, I would have been working at a location. Let's see. No, that, that was when I started the end of 82 is when I started at MCA, which was one of the two worst jobs of my career. Um, but I, I had never worked for a large corporation and I didn't understand the whole mentality of, uh, get it out cheap and get it out fast and don't worry about quality. I, I, I hated that. Anyway, um, so, yeah, but the stuff I was doing then, well, the stuff that I did at MCA that I liked, that was good stuff, I did the uh, soundtrack for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which I absolutely love, uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. And I did uh, uh, The Who's Greatest Hits, one of them, but it was called The Who's Greatest Hits. I don't know how it fits in the, <laughs> in the discography. but um, And I did uh, an album for a group called Red Rocker and, uh, just a bunch. I'm sure you can find it all on Discogs. But um, prior to that, I was working at Location Recording Service. And then I had my own business from 79 to 82 as a full-time business. And then we took that part-time. The CD was on the horizon. Um, my partner did not really want to spend the money to buy CD mastering gear. So I, I was offered a, a full-time job at MCA, and I took that. And then basically pushed uh, – it. The, the company that I – I had at that time for mastering was called the cutting system. And mm-hmm. I took the cutting system underground until 86 when we sold it to future disc. Mm-hmm. So when the CD came about, I mean, I'm sure you, you did a lot of mastering and stuff for CDs. Was yeah, there a the decade there? I was doing no vinyl. Oh, really? So there was just oh, yeah. no, no, no records getting cut for 10 years. Well, I wouldn't say 10 years. Um, Eight, well, almost eight years, I guess. There was very, very little vinyl. The, the, what kind of reopened vinyl for me was when DCC decided to launch back into vinyl, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, after they had been doing exclusively CD work, which was in 92. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is CKM92. Yeah, so, we, we were doing like the the uh, uh, not the who we were doing uh, Elton John's greatest hits and the Eagles' greatest hits and yeah. some other things and then yeah, no, that's great. There. Right. And this is has quite a, a reputation for sure. Uh, I heard you, you even work like punk bands and small labels. A lot of people, right? So when did jazz? I mean, you do everything and everything exquisitely. It's very, very good. Everybody recognizes and likes. But especially on the jazz niche, people don't Thank even you. drink. People drool over anything that you do. Uh, <laughs> it's true, right? And I mean, I don't even know how to respond to that. But yeah. <laughs> but and the, and the question is, when did jazz become more? You got more into jazz. Well, that's kind of an interesting question. That's a great question. Um, and I was a late bloomer to what you would call traditional jazz or bebop or, or however you want to, you know, mm-hmm. compartmentalize it. Um, I, I was mastering funk jazz and uh, fusion jazz in the mid 70s. And I even worked with Donald Byrd. I worked with Freddie Hubbard. And I didn't even know these guys' previous work. I mean, I almost hate to admit it, but it, it's just a fact. I, I, I wasn't familiar with their early work. And then um, my former brother-in-law, who's, whose name is John Crawford, who lives back in uh, Oak Park, Illinois, basically sat me down and said, man, you got to learn about early jazz. Because the first question he asked me is he said, um, do you know of, of the Jazz Crusaders? For some reason, he asked me, and I said, well, I know the Crusaders. And he goes, well, that's the current, you know, version of it. But, you know, you should. And so he pulled out a bunch of records and he says, by the time you go home, you should listen to all of these. You know, so he pulled out Kind of Blue and and uh, um, uh, Take Five. What's that called? The Time Out. And 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 then some other stuff that was, you know, very easily accessible, like Vince Caraldi uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, and you know, the jazz crusaders. And so I started listening to this stuff and then he, he kind of, kind of gave me the, the, the more palatable stuff that, well, you know, to an untrained ear. And then he, he threw out a few blue notes and I can remember the first blue notes I, I bought, which was, uh, the big beat by, by Blakey and, uh, uh, maiden voyage by Herbie Hancock. And, so that was a life, another life changer. That was the second big life changer in my life was discovering what I typically called traditional jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That is great. Then, I didn't really start mastering it really, I guess, until the music matters stuff in 2007. Yeah. So, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I had done a title here or a title there, mm-hmm. but, you know, not in any quantities. So that, that's actually, yeah, you, you kind of touched the, the next subject uh, uh, we wanted to, to, to ask you about. So in that mid-2000s uh, transition, you guys, you open Coherent, uh, and then you work in Music Matters. How did you guys, like you, Ron, Joe, uh, Michael, I mean, everybody got together and said, man, let's do this because we got to do it. How was the process there? How did you guys come together and uh, how did the workflow from there? Well, that was still at Acoustic um, (laughs) when we started that project. And I guess Ron and and Joe had kind of decided what they were going to do. But the big change was they were going to do the monos. They thought, we'll Mm -hmm. we'll put out the monos because that's what really sells big in the collector market. Mm -hmm. Until they heard the first stereo tape. (laughs) And uh, and also, you know, you've heard that... 
after 59, they were all marked at the bottom, you know, mono cut 50, 50 from stereo, meaning the two channels blended together equally. So um, when they heard those in stereo, they thought, screw it, man, we're, we're doing the stereos. And of course that was all 45 RPM split under four sides at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they thought about taking it to, to, uh, uh, Stan Ricker and cutting at half speed, and they thought about a few different things, and then they decided to to give me a shot, and uh, mm-hmm. they were really really happy with the results, and I, I stayed on with the project all the way through. Yeah. It is, you know, I feel like that is the template. You know what what yeah. they set up back then. I feel like is now what every jazz reissue series aspires to be, mm-hmm. and even the new releases. You know, I mean, they yeah. they set the bar on 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 how jackets look and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, including session photos is, was a great thing. Um, it was, you know, value added stuff. And of course they had to do a bit of that because they're charging 50 bucks for, for right. two albums, you know? Yeah. Which seems cheap now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. That was, geez, that was 17 years or 16 years ago. Sheesh. Yeah. And what that happened at the same time as we were cutting the, the 45s for Chad as well. Yeah. Um, I probably shouldn't get into that, but there was a big conflict over who had been promised what first. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll stay out of that. But yeah, so I wound up doing, you know, them for Chad too. Yeah, interesting. You know, I did notice that there's a Stanley Turn team live concert. I forget the name of it now. It, it has uh, Minton's. Minton's, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And, and Chad got one of, uh, uh, Analog Productions got one of them. I think. I think the first, maybe the second. No, I'm looking this volume two. The 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 volume two. And and then uh, Music Matters put out the first one. So it looks like there was some maybe some compromise. Yeah, there were there were. I think the big beat was one of the very first titles that we did, and didn't that wind up coming out on Acoustic Sounds? Uh, whatever it was, there was a Blakey for for Music Matters, and Chad wound up getting the title after it had been mastered. Oh right really tick them off anyway. Yeah, actually, so I have a question about this. So um, uh, Analog Productions has their prestige series um, that you've been a part of. Uh, now, when that when that initial run sold out, I think it was Kraft, they they uh, picked it up and they did this, this saxophone Colossus. Right. And I have the hype sticker here and it's, it's pressed at QRP your your initials are scribed in the dead wax, right? But compared to the uh, the analog productions series version, the the the, the scribing is a little different. So my question is, for a same title that looks like it's presented in a very similar way, I assume it's you know from the tapes, you know, at your studio, is there was this done again? Um, yes. To create those yeah. lacquers, and is there any noticeable difference between the two that you would that you would call out, or is it am I essentially good with this copy? <laughs> well, yeah, that's that. There have been some improvements to my system, okay. um, you know, along you know through the years, and um, and I, sometimes I go back and I looked at my at my old notes. Um, I don't have any notes before two thousand eight, so if it was mastered before then, I don't have them. Um, but you know, sometimes I go back to my old notes just to see what I did. I might not necessarily do exactly the same thing again, but you know, it's a starting point and yeah. particularly for levels and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, question? <laughs> so, well, the thing is, I'm so happy with this version, and I got this before they announced that the, that they were going to. Now, is that a 45 or a 33? That's a 45. This is a 33. So it's 33. Oh. So it's, okay. it's, it's, it's so I was thinking like it's 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 kg at at uh, coherent is in the dead wax here. Oh, okay. It's it's similar to Chad's version. So I just I'm happy with this. So I kept it. I was just curious to know like. Is that, I guess, common for you to take the same tape and redo it um, multiple times? There are some that I've done three and four times. You know, Waltz for Debbie, um, uh, uh, Village Vanguard, you know, Sunday at Village Vanguard. I've done those probably two or three times, mm -hmm. 45, 33, you know. Um, and I've just done them recently again for craft. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Very excited and about. going back even to the Miles Davis, you know, the, the four mono titles from Prestige. Um, I've mastered those a couple of times, and um, yeah. Did That's you do those the Columbia mono stuff like back in 2013? The Miles Davis Columbia. There was like a whole series of monos that came out. Well, I I don't I I can't say for sure. Okay. Okay. Um, I I did kind of blue because um, mm -hmm. they had originally released it for the 50th in what would that have been 2009, mm -hmm. and. And then um, it, it, it got kind of raped by the audiophile press. So they had me redo it in 2011, but mm. they're not stickered any differently. I don't, I don't know. I have, I happen to have one, but I don't know how you find one. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. That's you know, what's funny that there's a, that whole series of mono series of Miles' Columbia stuff that we recommend to people all the time because they sound so good and they're cheap. Mm -hmm. like if people don't want to spend, you know, money for a MoFi or something like that, you can get those for like twenty bucks, and they're, they sound yeah. good. Yeah, I, I did. I, I believe I did do a couple of those. I don't know if I did a whole series. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to go back to real quick. You said you did not respond to what Felipe was saying about, you know, your your name as like the gravitas for a release. Absolutely fact. The first thing anyone looks for is is your your name. Was it pressed at RTI or QRP or Optimal? They do a great job there too. But yes, it's amazing how how much gravity that carries in in our in our community. Yeah, you know, well, it's it's like nice you to hear. Her, you it's know. nice to hear. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. And I we just know we're going to get something that's quality. I think it's yeah. I think I think it's you now, right, Chris? I'm gushing over Kevin. Sorry. That's fine. No, I just think because I think the next we could connect that to uh, yeah for sure yeah. So yeah, that's the next subject is kind of like on being uh, a recording engineer as well as a mastering engineer now. So you know, you've been in mostly mastering tapes for you know reissues and releases, and now at Coherent, you are also a recording engineer. How does that change your approach to the mastering, or does does it affect your thinking process? Like how, well, how does that change things? I actually started recording before, well before I started mastering. You know, I had a you know a Revox and a pair of microphones back in the in the late 60s. And, you know, I was going out doing churches and schools and that kind of stuff. That's how I cut my teeth on it. Mm. And um, I, I've done a lot of recording over the years. People are only becoming aware of it because of uh, coherent recording and coherent records. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not really a new thing to me. What was new was actually, um, it, you know, most of the stuff that they did in the early days was a stereo pair. So, uh, or four mics, if it was like a choir and an orchestra, but, but mixing four individual instruments with one mic each, which is what we did both on Kirsten's record and the new record, um, 
I guess I'll call it Anthony's record. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that was kind of new to me. And I, I wasn't sure how well I was going to be able to do it. it, it it's, it's difficult, but, you know, I can handle it and it's been fun. I've enjoy, I enjoy it. So you're doing like multi-track then? Like, like, you know, no? No. Oh, no. It's mixed live to oh, two-track. Cool. Just nice. like Rudy did it, and, like and did it. all of, most of those other guys, with the exception of the Columbia stuff that was done three track and then mixed down. Well, that's got to be some pressure. It is. It is <laughs> not quite as bad as direct to disc, but probably yeah. the next most difficult. At least you can retake it if you're not happy with it. Right. Know? Yeah, but you're not like able to go back and remaster it after the fact with all the different. Well, you can. Yeah, I mean, in mastering, there's certain things that I could change a little bit, but sure, you know. But you can't up the level of like the drum track. Not like really, although the drums are on the right channel, so you could bring up the right channel, but that's sure, going to screw sure. up your piano and bass right. balance. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there's certain little things that you can do. Or I can add whatever's missing in the drums, the bass mm -hmm. or the top, on the right channel only, you know, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like that. Would you ever consider doing something in mono? Not really. I don't think there's enough of a market for it. Okay. Um, in all honesty, I mean... Yeah. How That's many very, do you think I'd sell? You know, five hundred. You know, <laughs> I don't know, man. If you if you put if you if you put it out, it's probably going to sell. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I I just I wouldn't have the confidence to do that, really. Yeah. You know, maybe way down the road, but not mm -hmm. right away. Yeah. That actually brings up something that's kind of interesting. Do you have any insight into like the market and how it's doing for vinyl now? Like, has it? Do you do you have any insight? Like, it seems like to us that there's maybe some overpressing going on, like because people were so excited from the pandemic and, and how there was never, you know, pressing capacity. And now it seems like the market market's just getting flooded. That's a good question. From, from what I've been able to glean from my distributors, what I'm hearing is that $39 records are doing fine. What's not selling at all are $150 records. Um, mm. I think yeah. part of it's the economy. I think part of it's just, well, geez, I could buy this one record or I could buy these three or four, you know, um, yeah. So that's that's what I'm hearing. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm I'm firmly on board with not spending 150 bucks on a record. Yeah, so, uh, my system's like I mean I I don't have a great system anyway, and I don't feel like I'm going to hear you know a 300 percent difference. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And even on a great system, <laughs> you're probably not going to hear. It's, mar it's marginal difference. So yeah. 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 Exactly. So. Yeah. Speaking of uh, distributors, we were we were kind of chatting beforehand. For your coherent um, project, it seems like that you're in like acoustic sounds, elusive disc, music direct, in groove. Um, looks like there's a great relationship there. Yes. Is that essentially the 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 where where you're um, distributing your your records to? Is there, well, is there also uh, Steve King um, Audio in in Germany for okay. for, for the EU, and then also. Um, F minor, which goes by another name too. I can't remember in the UK. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, so I know so that a total uh, of six. That the Edkins one had multiple pressings. I think it sounded like um, that you were kind of just uh, getting a sense of, of the demand. So for the new release, the the, yes. fir the first run, do you have the the quantity that you'll distribute? Do you have like a, a number based on your experience with the um, the first title? Yeah, I'll probably. I'll probably do 2,500. Okay. You know, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's top flight artists. I mean, okay. So sh should I make the announcement? Yes. <laughs> it, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's basically, not basically it's, it's an uh, Anthony Wilson album, jazz guitar. 
Um, and he's being backed up by Gerald Clayton, coincidentally, again, because uh, he was on Kirsten's record, but Anthony picked him for piano. His uh, uh, Gerald's dad, John Clayton, on, on uh, double bass, and uh, uh, Jeff Hamilton on drums. So, I mean, th- these are top-notch players. As a matter of fact, it's kind of funny. The day after we finished the recording, uh, all of them except for Gerald joined uh, uh, Diana Krall on her tour in Canada. Yes. Uh, I mean, they left the next day. And, of course, Gerald's not playing on it because Diana plays piano. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's really busy, too. So, And, you know, he... Gerald and and Anthony are part of one of uh, Charles Lloyd's trios, you know, so they were on the last uh, trio set that we did. Yeah. Busy guys. And it took a it literally took a year to get the four guys together in my studio for two days in a row. It was uh, so. So interesting, uh, Kevin. So Kirsten recorded first or he recorded before Kirsten and in that regard, if he recorded now, it's going to be our second record. Do you feel any kind of at least like inner pressure to make it even better? I mean, sonically or... Well, it's done. It's done. It's it's in the can, so to speak. We haven't mastered it yet, but uh, we've got the mm-hmm. tapes and it, it came yeah. out great. I mean, Joe's Joe produced it, uh, Joe Harley, and, and he's really excited. We're both very excited about it. And yeah. Anthony's probably hasn't even heard it yet because he's on tour. We mm-hmm. sent him the files, but uh, we had to dumb it down to 44.1, uh, you know, 24 bits so that the files didn't take forever to download. Um, uh, we actually took the analog tape, went back to, even though I run a simul digital, we took the analog tape and went back to, uh, to digital again, just so you could hear it with all the sauce, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, but, but the tape that, what, what Joe was listening to was 176, 24 and, and, and what, uh, or 172, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. and 176 and, and what, uh, Anthony will be hearing is 44 one. That's exciting. So when the musicians are like, are the musicians as nerdy about this type of stuff as, as we all are? Like, are they excited like about your, your Hackensack West? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Anthony, it was so funny because Anthony came in to sit in with us. He sat sat in with us three or four times on blue note sessions with Joe and I. And so I showed him the studio right after it was completed. And he said, just off the wall, he said, I could record in here. (laughs) <laughs> wow that would be cool but i didn't push the issue right yeah so he calls joe about a month or two later and he says um hey i i want to come by on another session to take a look at the studio and talk to kevin it's like okay so we're in the studio again and he goes hey i want to do an album in here and i said you mean for you and he goes no for you and i'm like <laughs> wow okay cool yeah i'm totally down with it and so uh, he says, yeah, I, I think what you're doing is great. Uh, it's a real throwback. He goes, uh, uh, you know, I haven't done a real back to my roots record in a while. So mm-hmm. he said, uh, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we sent the 17 minute video to the other musicians. They saw it, liked it, understood what we were doing. And um, yeah, they, they came in and listened to playbacks and, Everybody was really happy. There were a couple of suggestions here and there after we did our first take, which we won't use. It was just a test. Yeah. And, uh, and, and on we went. So uh, are they doing any standards or is it original composition? Uh, okay. We recorded, um, we recorded nine tracks and we probably have room for six on the LP. Okay. Um, and uh, let's see, seven, I think seven of the nine were originals. And oh, wow. two, 
tour covers. So mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to be on the record. That I can't say okay. yet. Just, we just sure. don't know. Um, that's, that's awesome. So then you're already setting yourself up for like, you know, an extended release in the future, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would love to get it out before the end of the year, but no promises. You know, I mean, it's just and it's going to be particularly hard with I think Anthony's going to be out with uh, Diana until around the 15th of August. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he had a, a, a really great photographer. Um, his name is uh, Brian Bixby come by and take some pics and you can go to his uh, Instagram and see a couple of things. But um, so, you know, Anthony's going to have to go through the pictures, figure out what we want for front and back cover. Um, and and then we have to have all of the takes and, and the songs that we're using figured out in a sequence before we can do labels and jackets. So it's, it's like pulling teeth a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. with a little luck, with a lot, no, with a lot of luck, we can get it out before the end of the year, but otherwise it'll probably be early next year. That's nice. Awesome. It's, it's awesome. It's such a great project. Um, I was just looking, I mean, this is a silly question, but you know, like Blue Note and Prestige and Riverside, like they all have iconic labels, the original labels. And it's oh, like, this is the coherent one here. And uh, I don't, it's unique in its own way. In terms of the design, did you hire a designer to help with this or is this something that, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm using a guy named Chris, Chris Moosedale, um, who's in New Zealand. So that kind of adds a little bit of extra back and forth on it. But uh, yeah, Chris Chris uh, did all the Music Matters covers, including the original ones that they created for like um, uh, Solid by Grant Green. And I think it was, um, what was the Lee Morgan that they created a jacket for? Um, uh, music Matters? Yeah. Come on, Felipe, you got this. <laughs> Felipe has nearly every single Music Matters. <laughs> I can't remember. I, I, yeah, can't, I, I can't remember. It'll probably come to me by the end. But anyway, so yeah, he created those from scratch. So he kind of knows the whole Reed Miles feel, you know, and, yeah. and, and all of that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I had some input to the label. He, he kind of came up with it. So yeah. I wanted it to kind of have a little bit of a blue note feel, but not be blue. I thought that would be. Yeah. Too yeah, obvious. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I don't think anybody, I don't think anyone's done green. So I think you're good. Okay. Yeah. Prestige, I always thought had the ugliest label I've ever seen. I, I thought that fireworks label, the yellow one. I, I never understood that. I mean, really? I agree. <laughs> but that's maybe that's just me. That's two of us anyway. I like, mm-hmm. that, you know, the blue label that came out a little later the, yeah. the, with the trident. That one's pretty decent. I mean, it's pretty simple, but it looks good. Right. Um, right, but, you know, Riverside Contemporary—they had some interesting labels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Contemporary is really cool. Like just with the whole circle, especially like the old green and gold ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. So, so Kevin, given all of that, was having your own studio your very first goal from from the start, from the very beginning? Did you ever envision having a studio yourself? And why the tubes? Well, it's very funny. I, I did want to have a studio myself, but I wasn't going to do it this way. Um, I had worked out a deal with a studio in North Hollywood back in 2017 to use their room and my gear. They had a room that was actually about the size of Inglewood Cliffs. It was like 35 by 35 with a high ceiling, not a vaulted, not, not that pyramid ceiling, but, you know, a high ceiling. And I thought, hey, this should be great. And uh, I had heard some stuff that had been recorded in there and liked it. 
and everything was all laid down. They even were going to keep give me a smaller room to, just to keep all of my gear in, so I wouldn't have to slip back and forth. And perfect, mm-hmm. right? 2020, the pandemic killed them. They were out of business in a year. Oh wow! And yeah, and that ended that. And then it's like, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I just didn't know. And I talked to a couple of other studios. I would have had to schlep all the gear. But anyway, then then uh, uh, Rich Capelis did his uh, RVG Legacy uh, website. And mm-hmm. I saw the layout of Rudy's room, oh, yeah. and I went, "Wait a minute! My yeah. living room is about the same size. This is crazy, you know." <laughs> and my wife was like, "Do it, do it. Let's 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 do it." Because you know, it was a test. We'll see how it works. And you know, oh. I, I said on that video when I opened up the mics the first time with the musicians in the room, it was like, "Wow, it, it sounds mm-hmm. like a Pluto." What can I say? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that yeah. RPG Legacy yeah. website is incredible. That's a great. It website. is, yeah. Rich, Rich has just done an amazing job, yeah. an amazing job, yeah. and he keeps adding little stuff to it. He finds more things. Yeah, oh, we've had a chance to talk with him a little bit too. He is, cool. he's just awesome. We, he yeah. is. Yeah. I agree. And Kevin, he came yeah. out. He saw the room. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I what well, the the day that he came out was the first time that Joe actually saw the room. We had just mm. finished it. And uh, I walked into the room and I said, jokingly, welcome to Hackensack West. And <laughs> they're looking around and, you know, the first thing Rich says, you've even got the lamp between the piano and the drums. And I went, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so Joe goes, Hackensack West. I like that. <laughs> so it became the unofficial name of the studio. It's officially coherent recording. So, Kevin, one of the greatest stories I heard about your studio, and uh, if you don't mind telling, how did you get your, 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 your console from Slovakia? I thought it was fascinating. Oh, the Studer C37. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it came up on eBay for 3000 bucks. This is in 2005. Now, you got to remember, 2005 was the year that analog audio tape went away. Gone. Nobody mm. in the world was making it. So the prices on tape recorders started really bottoming out and uh, 3000 bucks. I thought that's a little high in this market. Nah, the guy relisted it. Like whenever the, the thing ran out for 1500 bucks, like a couple Ooh. of weeks later, oh, wow. and I was tempted. I was going to email him, but I went, nah, another <laughs> week goes by and he puts it up for 800. But the problem was he wasn't listing it as a recorder. He said, parts parts only but he had a picture of all of the parts laid out on the floor i mean everything was there i mean the transport wasn't disassembled but you know it's a very modular machine and the record amplifiers the playback amplifiers the bias the power supplies they're all separate modules so it's all laid out all over the floor so i i emailed the guy thinking i wonder if he speaks english he did and uh i said uh, so what's the story you're listing it as parts he goes oh no no it's a complete machine, and I will ship it to you as a complete machine. I just don't want anybody to come back to me and say, this doesn't work or that doesn't work or there's a problem with this or that and get bad feedback. Mm-hmm. And so I hit the buy it now right then. And um, he sh- it cost 500 bu- It was $800 plus $500 to ship it from the airport in Slovakia to Los Angeles International, LAX. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went down and picked it up there. So that's the best purchase I've ever made in my life. <laughs> and, oh, you know, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe you don't know. They're going for 20 grand or more now. Mm-hmm. Some guy's asking 59,000 for one, but it's been on there for months. Wow. I don't think he's going to get that. So that was that the first kind of big component piece that 
um, you have in your studio? Was that kind of the, 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 the beginning of it all? And Well, not quite. I mean, I actually started building my first pair of U47s prior to that. Oh, um, okay. The Neumann clones yep. that I yep. built. Um, and so, uh, and, and I w- already had the design worked out for my mixer and I was starting to construct it. Um, now, for, for the miking, that U47, is that just, is that used just for a specific application? Like, um, like it's pretty nice on anything you put it in front of. Okay. I mean, um, on Kirsten's record, I used it on her sax, I used it on the piano, um, okay. and then I used my M49s, which are also Neumanns, and they're very similar, but a little different. Um, but very similar sounding. They use the same capsule, um, but the housing is different and the electronics are different. But anyway, um, so yeah, I, they're all fairly interchangeable. And then, and then the, um, and I, I, I use the 47 on, on the guitar amp for Anthony. And I used, um, uh, I used a 49 actually on the piano for this. And I used a 49 on the drums. And then, uh, my, one of my favorite discoveries is I have the little stereo mic that they made that, that uses small capsules. Um, they're like three quarter inch or half inch. Um, and they're nickel capsules. It, it the, the mono version of it is called a KM56. The stereo version was called the SM2. It was literally the very first stereo microphone made. Oh, wow. um, not mine, but I mean the model. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very bright mic. And but for bass, it works so great. You know, I just, you know, position it kind of right below the bridge, kind of aimed up and you can pick up the fingering and and all the little sounds that upright basses make, you know. And so I use that on both recordings. So you mentioned that these mics are clones and sounds like you you develop them. It really sounds like this studio is really just like you are everything in here is like your own construction and except for the c37 that's pretty true yeah i mean it's pretty incredible um i i just think that you know for i think the uniqueness of what you're doing that i think even if others wanted to replicate it it would be extremely challenging to achieve what what you've done over the over setting this up over the years i agree (laughs) i can't deny it yeah. Um, and, it, you know, I admit that it was a wacky idea when I came up with it, you know, <laughs> and, but I didn't realize it was going to take 15 years. I mean, there was uh, you could really say 12 years because there was three years in the middle there. 2010, I was working, building my garage into this room that you're looking at behind you. And then in, in 2011, I moved in. But then I started almost immediately rebuilding my console. Um, uh, and, and that took 2011 and a chunk of 2012. So, um, yeah. so is you said it's your living room. Do you, you live there with your studio and in, in your, in your mastering room? Actually, no. Um, my wife loves that idea because it really makes her sound like a saint to have given up her living room and dining room. Uh, <laughs> so I'm blowing that cover right now. No, um, uh, we have my wife and I have two houses. This is my old house that I bought in 1994, and um, so I built the, the mastering room into the garage. That is also the control room when we record, and okay. then the, the studio is in the living room, dining room. Now I rent the rest of the house to my son, and uh, okay. so he's got two bedrooms in the back, the bathroom, and then he has access to the kitchen because we kind of jointly share that when we're doing recordings for yeah. hospitality, but. Uh, but yeah, he he was willing to give up the living room and dining room, which was, and I cut his rent. So, <laughs> well, <that helps. laughs> 
This sounds great. This sounds great. Spe speaking of space, Kevin, uh, one thing we were talking about here uh, earlier. So it's a small space. It's it is. It's for a jazz band, but also like a garage band. Do you ever plan to release anything that's non-jazz? Yes. Uh, and I'm already talking to a guy. I probably shouldn't mention who it is at this point. But the one other thing I would really like to do that I think would lend itself to the room is rockabilly. Oh, and, cool. You know, with like, with like four pieces again, you know, just guitar mm -hmm. with a vocal, bass, drums, piano. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something I would love to do. And I, I think we will maybe a couple of albums down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, that's you know, most rock and roll requires multi-tracking. You, you couldn't record it live. A lot of it requires ISO booths and things like that for the vocals. I think I could do a live vocal on a rockabilly kind of thing or with a jazz pianist who also sings. Mm -hmm. But for most things, it, it, it wouldn't be practical. So it, it now, you were asking if I, if I plan to have a studio. At one point, I thought I was going to build a multi-track studio and then also have the tube system in there. And so I bought a 16-track uh, 3M, which I love the sound of. I wound up selling it because I realized once I got this room going, this is my primary focus, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> there just isn't enough time to do all this other stuff, too. It's It's well, been tough enough trying to do mastering and recording. We were, we were talking before this. I don't know if somebody mentioned it earlier, but you are, like, mastering everything like you're on pretty much like every new thing that's coming out with jazz which i think is great i have um multiple reissues from you and some other engineers which are great as well but i i tend to put yours above i think you really do just um your your setup or whatever just has something special that is just you know to my ear just I prefer it. So thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And I do think my system is pretty special. There's, there's not another one like it in the world. It's, it's the only totally class a discrete transformerless system from yeah. tape head to cutter head in the yeah. world. Yeah. So, because it's a very like scientific methodical job. Right. But at the same time, there's a lot of uh, feeling into it, I believe. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it, it I, I, you know, I'd actually, I'd, I'd give the system about a 50% share and, and my input another 50%. But uh, that's that's the way I look at it. Do you have to, here's a, uh, something else I was thinking about with your all your old tube system. Do you have to change things out like when you're in your cutter and with the cutter? Oh my gosh. It, yeah, that, that's another thing. People say, well, why aren't you using the tube system for some of the stuff that you cut? And it's like... Um, that would be kind of competing with myself. And it's time consuming. It takes literally half a day to mm -hmm. switch out. I have solid state electronics on, on one corner of the room and, and the tube electronics on the other. And I literally have to switch them out, you know, meaning, you know, unplugging all the cables, plug them all back in again with the tube system. Um, I'm actually using a different cutter head. I'm using a Neumann SX-68, which is the slightly older version of the, mm -hmm. of the SX-74 that I'm using for the solid state system, just because it, it is vintage and it fits right in the, the vintage. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 a and, and then setting up the you know the tube mastering console and you know the the, the tube electronics for the the studio playback. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's a yeah, it's a half a day solid and then a little less than half a day to put it all back again, but not a mm -hmm. whole lot less. Well, yeah. as much stuff as you're cutting, that's a that's a big time commitment. Yeah, it 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 just it isn't feasible. It wouldn't be feasible. You know, people say, well, you cut the war, and I went, yeah, that was a test. That was <laughs> just just to see how the tube system. Yeah, you know, did and I was thrilled with it. It came out great. So well, that yeah. thing went to the roof. I mean, after, oh you, after you told everybody that was that was a 
case that you can't yeah. even find that record anymore. Yeah, I, I, I told uh, uh, Patrick Milligan, I said, you guys should put that out as, as a non-limited edition black vinyl. You know, you've got the metal parts sitting, you know, wherever they are. I, I think they're at, uh, I think they pressed that at Memphis. Mm-hmm. You're pressing, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, it would definitely sell. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah. 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 Well, so. As a, as a uh, tube amp owner, one thing you always keep in mind, I got to plan for the future right? because you never know if you're going to find tubes again, right? Right. Are you using an OS? Yes, yes. Well, it, it uses a very weird power tube. It uses, a, it's called a 6LQ6 or 6JE6. It's basically a TV sweep tube. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the few amplifiers to, to use that uh, for audio. And I just, I love the sound of those amplifiers. They just, they blew me away the first time I ever heard them. Uh, I have a friend who's got literally a mega buck system. And he's driving at full range. Actually, he's not. He, he is using a subwoofer amp, but like from 50 hertz down. Um, but when I heard full orchestra played on his system, I went, God, I would love to cut a record with these amplifiers. It just rocks. Yeah. And um, oh, and, and so, yeah, I have a huge stockpile of tubes, you know, because mm-hmm. in, in 2005, I knew that's what I wanted to cut records with when I got to that point. So I started picking them up, and uh, I was buying them in sleeves of five. I bought 40 of them from a guy brand new in the box. So, yeah, I'm pretty well set for tubes. That is great. You mentioning orchestra. I pulled out this record I just recently picked up that you cut. You were recently on Steve Westman's uh, panel with, uh, with, with a bunch of great guys. I think Mazzy, uh, uh-huh. The Wax, uh, Patrick, The Vinyl Archivist, and yep. Michael, Michael Poetry on Plastic, who is a – classical musician and, uh-huh. he, and i think you guys were talking about some of the classical things that you've worked on and i was able to find this one from speaker's corner uh-huh this is wonderful so you. I, you mentioned that you haven't done too much classical but if you if if anybody's interested in getting some uh, kevin gray classical there is some speaker's corner stuff and this one in particular this is there's a, a whole series and um there's a whole uh, columbia masterworks series yeah oh, wow. And uh, they were actually cut from the original analog tapes because apparently their classical division has kind of a different agreement from their pop oh, right. division. I couldn't believe it. I got two huge boxes of tapes. I think it was, was it 10 or 20 LPs? I can't remember. It was a bunch of LPs and there's Stravinsky plays Stravinsky. Yep. There's uh, uh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff with the LA Phil called the Columbia symphony orchestra or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, They're fantastic. Just, I mean, I, I only have this one, but it sounds it sounds incredible. So thank you. I highly recommend. And I think I don't want to misspeak, but I think the originals don't sound all that great. I don't think they're they're highly collectible, collectible. But the performances are fantastic, and this pressing is tremendous. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, Kai Zeman was 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 really pleased because um, you know he didn't have originals to send me. He, well, he had originals. He didn't want to send them to me because he wanted to make sure that he had them and they didn't get lost. And then he had them for comparison. And when he got my cuts and compared them to the original, he went, "Wow, you, yeah, you did a great job. Thank you." So that that was that was nice. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, I I also did the, the the first thing that I did of any notoriety uh, was right after I opened here in 2011. I did the Mahler box set for the San Francisco Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, which was one of these things where they actually pre-sold it before they pressed it. And apparently some of those were allotted for dealers, but very, very few. 
And that was a thrill to cut. And that was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to cut. The Mahler 8th, if you're familiar with it, with full orchestra, pipe organ and chorus. I mean, come on, you know, and and trying to get that on, on the record clean. Um, yeah, that was that was quite a challenge. And I was really thrilled when I heard it. So. The, the the tape thing from Columbia. Um, so they shipped those from New York to you. Yep. Wow. Yeah. How, how do they? How do they ship? As shocked as you are. How do, how do they ship stuff like that? Is it just through FedEx or UPS or something, or is somebody driving it? No, FedEx. Really? Yeah. Wow. In a big flimsy cardboard box. <laughs> I mean, they had they had wrapped them individually in bubble wrap, and I think they ran wrapped bubble wrap around the outside, but then they just put it in. You know, it would be like, you know, a moving and storage box, you know. <laughs> well, you know, so all the Blue Note stuff is, is local, right, to you? Oh, yeah. Those are hand-delivered, and all the Warner stuff is hand-delivered and picked yeah. up. Oh. Yeah, yeah I just envision, like, some guy with, like, a, you know, a briefcase with a handcuff on his hand. <laughs> and the tape to you. No. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they have their own in-house messengers, or they use a messenger service. But, yeah, it's, it's a door-to-door thing. That makes sense. When and, and, and also Concord with... You know, their, their stuff's all stored at Iron Mountain out here, but but yeah, mm-hmm. those are also hand delivered, not to ship. I, I think I heard uh, I heard or read uh, Joe's. He, he mentioned once when Music Matters started, he went first himself to pick up some tapes, and he was he said he grabbed them, it was like shaking. He couldn't, you know, it was so Joe goes slowly, afraid of getting a car crash, everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I know some horror stories about that kind of stuff too, but <laughs> what um. You know, I've heard, uh, you know, in passing about baking the tapes. and it yes. makes them, So is that something that you do at your facility or is that I do. something? It is. Okay. I do. And, I have a convection oven for doing that. And that's that only applies to like 1970s, which would probably be from about 74 up through early 80s, I guess, mm-hmm. maybe about 84 um, tapes that were made by uh, Ampex, both 406 and 456. Those were the culprits. There was a major change in their formulation and they just over a period, they were fine for the first decade. And then we started noticing in the eighties, mid eighties, I guess that they would start squealing. And, and (laughs) if you let them continue to play it, they would just literally come to a stop on the machine because they just sludged all over the heads and guides. Hmm. And initially we tried cleaning them by hand. You would have to play the tape all the way through and, and, mm-hmm. and, and use a, uh, you know, like a, a Kleenex, you know, or a, a soft cotton cloth. Uh, and that didn't really, it helped, but it didn't fix the problem. And then Ampex themselves figured out that if, if they baked the tapes, it, it fixed it. So then they put out the information. Do you have to do that every time? Like if you're like, let's say you cut a record, and then a year later, you get the same tape back. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, after you bake them, they're only good for maybe another month at the longest before they wow. start absorbing moisture again. Mm-hmm. And you got to just bake the moisture out of them, and then they're fine. And I've I had tapes that have been baked. I mean, they, they usually put stickers on them indicating when they were baked. Sometimes they got 10 stickers on them, you know. So it doesn't damage the tape at all, then? It doesn't seem to. Mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of stuff my dad recorded. I mean, just home stuff from his reel-to-reel. They're all Ampex tapes, so I'm going to have to figure that out probably if I ever actually want Well, if it's prior to that time, they're fine, you know. No, it's like 72 to 78 or something. What's what's the temperature then? Yeah, I want to just put it in my oven or what? (laughs) They say 125 degrees for five hours. Okay. Okay. Um, 
I go 135 degrees and for half the time. And the advantage to that is that you don't have to replace every single splice in the tape because basically if you heat them up for five hours, all of the sticky stuff, stick, you know, most of them had paper leader. All the mm-hmm. sticky winds up on the paper leader and they just fall apart. Uh, so, um, you, know, you know, funny, Kevin, that's the exact same path I took with my record flattener, the exact same temperatures. They recommend okay. 125. I, I boosted to 135, and I'm happy with that. Yeah, I did a lot of experimentation on my own tapes before yeah. I ever tried doing that with a pro tape and never had a problem. I even tried <laughs> – I baked one at 135 for 10 hours, and there was no problem. So I thought, mm-hmm. okay. So then I started doing it on, on client's tapes, and I've never had an issue with it. Mm-hmm. Or somebody will come after me and say, you can't do that. It's like, well, yeah. okay. That's Have there been any tapes that just they're too degraded that you just you can't <laughs> use them anymore? That's Maybe a good question. Not usually, but boy, well, there, okay, there's there's two things. The first tape that everybody used was Scotch 111, and they, we had that from 48 to like 64, right? It was like just about all there was out there. That stuff's almost perfect. There's never a problem with it. It doesn't wind smoothly, and it gets a little bit cupped and curled sometimes, but normally it'll play fine over the heads. Anyway, that's not an issue. 201, which replaced it, that has a nasty tendency. If it's not properly stored, and I don't know if it's humidity or temperature, but it will actually flake off. You'll, you'll, you'll get like little tiny bits of, of oxide missing to the point you can hold it up to the, to the light and see through it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's not good. Um, and some of those still play, but it usually just increases the noise level a little bit. They sound hissy when it first starts to happen. When you lose more, you, you can't play it because you can hear, you know, you know, as it's going over the heads. Right. That's one. Then the, then the third thing would be um, uh, Scotch 226 was the worst tape formulation ever developed. It was more like the Ampex. I think they were trying to copy what Ampex was doing because it was supposed to be compatible with Ampex. Um, on that stuff, the oxide and the back coating stick together and you got nothing. When you put it into rewind, it's like confetti flying all over the room. The tape just literally disintegrates. I mean, it's still, I mean, the, the, I should say the oxide and the back coating disintegrates and what you're left with is a clear piece of uh, like saran wrap, you know. No, uh, absolute, absolute disaster and it's unsavable there's nothing you can do making mm-hmm. it just fuses it more tightly <laughs> you're recording to tape for coherent correct and what tapes do you use for that uh okay a lot of people don't want to fess up on that i uh, i prefer the uh, european tape which was originally basif and then it became um rmg or rmgi incorporated and then now it's called uh recording the masters which we just shortened to rtm okay. so it, it's it's the tape that's made in uh i can't remember if it's france or i think it's made in france now it was made in holland for a while it got around germany originally but so it's, it became available again at S, some S, sm 900 is the model number and i love it it just it sounds amazing well, and you can buy that you've heard it if you heard kirsten's record yeah so you can buy that new today if you if you want. Yeah. To. Oh yeah. It's it's currently made. Okay. Yeah. The only other competing tape is is uh, uh, ATR Magnetics, uh, which is back in Pennsylvania. They're making their own tape. They were the guys that kind of took over building and refurbishing the Ampex ATR 100 tape machine, and uh, that that company's called uh, RTM uh, ATR Service now, which the parent company sold. So it's it's owned by a different guy. 
but they still make the tape. So it's only the two types of tape available. So do you think more people are starting to record analog again then? Are using analog? Tape? I don't know about now. I mean, they were for a while. Um, I, I kind of saw a resurgence. Well, after 2005, that year, in 2006, I think they launched um, ATR Magnetics Tape. And then about the same time, the, uh, the Dutch, I think at that time, um, came on with the RMGI. And then tape was back. And a lot of people were mixing down to it. I don't think too many people are, are recording on two-inch anymore, either 16 or 24. Um, everybody's still recording to Pro Tools. But then they, they mix it down analog sometimes to either half-inch 30 IPS or whatever. Hey, you've been extremely generous with your time. This has been really fun so far. Oh, I've had fun. I've had fun. It's been good. It's great. Uh, so, records. All right. I know it's a workhorse, but it's still my favorite album, jazz album of all time. So uh, this happens to be the version that I mastered, but um, like I say, I'm not sure how you find one. Um, actually, so okay, that's a, I guess I'm tuning my own horn, but all of these are ones that I cut, except who, who for one. Put, who put that one out? That was that was a gatefold, right, that you just showed? There's the fifth. Uh, oh, actually, I'm showing the wrong jacket. This is Chad's. He sent, <laughs> it, to me. He, he sent it to me. Uh, I asked him if I could get one, and he actually sent me one. Oh, um, but, but yeah, yeah, because you're right; it is a gatefold. The one that I did is not okay. Busted. Okay, so <laughs> so something else. If you liked kind of blue, I predict you're gonna like this record. I mean, this is probably my third favorite jazz album of all time. Yeah, it's fantastic. Second favorite is this one, Blues and the Abstract Truth. I just, oh, yeah. I just love this record. Um, it grabbed me the first time I ever heard it. Um, it's yeah, got it's, a great groove on it. It's so it good. does, it does, and the musicians and just everything about it. I just love it. Mm -hmm. um, you cut that one too. Pardon me. You cut yeah. that one too. Uh, yes, I did. I did it for Chad for the Impulse. Yeah, you know, the acoustic sound. I guess it was the yeah. A Jazz series. Yeah. Forty-five. Yeah. And and that's actually my original copy of it. That's not. That's I, I couldn't find the A Jazz one. No. <laughs> And this is one that I did recently that I also love, and I have the original of it. It's Gerald Wilson, big band. Can you see it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Moment of truth. A lot of truth in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and, and Anthony actually came in and sat in on us mastering this. which was that, All those specific jazz tone poets have been fantastic, and I – you know, I credit to you, and then also I'm assuming Roy Dunan is the is the recording engineer on those. Is that is that correct? Uh, no, no, he was not. That's the no. contemporary stuff. No. I'm not sure that we even know who the engineer was. I mean, most of them say audio by Dick Buck. Whether okay. that means he actually recorded them or not, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But um, yeah, this is actually still sealed. I'd have to open, or maybe let's see. No, I don't. Recording engineer Richard Buck, it says. So, okay. okay. And then, last but not least, this is an album that came out long ago, uh, you know, like maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and I started hearing it on the local jazz station, K Jazz. Um, and it's Anthony Wilson's Power of Nine. You guys familiar with this at all? Mm -mm. No. Well, we'll probably sell this one out and whatever's left, if there's any around. Um, 
this is just an amazing album. It's in heavy rotation on my system. I play it all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually on Groove Note, uh, Ying Tan's label, and oh. produced by Joe Harley, which I didn't know when I was hearing it. I oh, called really? up Joe. It's like, man, I'm hearing the most amazing Anthony Wilson record. And he said, what's it called? And I said, Power Nine. And he goes, I, I produced that. I'm like, wow. <laughs> so this was this was kind of Bernie's because, you know, that that's where yeah, they were yeah. everything at that point in time. So uh, that's my show and tell. Awesome. So that last, I'm sorry, that last one, who put that out? Groove Note. Groove Note, yeah. Ying, Ying Tan's label. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, I, I can show all my pop stuff because you know we didn't discuss this, but I'll just say real quickly. You know, I came up in the in the in the British invasion, so that was my go-to music when I was a kid, up through teenage years, mid-teenage, early twenties, and so you know, I, I could put up a bunch of those records. You know, Rubber Soul, Let It Bleed, Thank You, oh, yeah. Yeah. that's my favorite Stones album. Um, you know, Creedence Clearwater. Well, that's not British Invasion, but you know, Creedence Clearwater, uh, The Who, Who's Next. You know, I, I probably have. 15 albums that I consider my favorite from yeah. the yeah. rock and roll stuff. So, so, so Kevin, in, in that regard, um, some records have been reissued, remastered to exhaustion. There's demand for them, of course. But which records that are either fun to you or that really need to be worked on that you would like to see else that... that well, obviously, I'd love to get a crack at the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. Now that they should put through your your analog console, the uh, the Beatles, or the the, you mean the, uh, the tube console. Uh, yeah, the tube console. Yeah, that would be a special exception. <laughs> I don't or know. not? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, but you know, Abbey Road's never going to let them out, and you know they're happy with what Sean McGee's doing for them, and uh, I, I don't think it would ever happen. But but you know, you can dream. Yeah. Have you have you have you cut a record that was one of your childhood favorites? Yeah, have you had that? Oh, have you had that opportunity? yes, several. I mean, I'd I'd have to stop and think um, about what that would be. Um, what I guess what the thing I'm thinking about is hearing the master tape from one of your like records that you're infinitely familiar. Oh, Dark Side of the Moon would be yeah. an obvious go-to. I mean, I, I I've, I've talked about how when I threaded up that tape and hit play and the heartbeats start going, I mean, it sent chills down my spine. It's like, I'm like, yeah. I can't believe I'm actually playing the master tape on this. It was I was got goosebumps just thinking about that experience, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get goosebumps just thinking about it again, you know. Mm -hmm. That was incredible. But, you know, what's, uh, what's really kind of funny is that when, I'm, when I get to remaster an album that I mastered originally in the 70s, you know, and, and uh, thanks to, to Jem Kurzman and, and the Classics series, You know, I got to do Spaces and Places or Places and Spaces. Yeah. I was getting yeah. mixed up. Uh, you know, Donald Byrd. I love that record. Bobby Humphrey. Um, there were two or three that were part of that Sky High Productions run that I did, um, which were originally on Blue Note. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Another album that I mastered that I'd love to get to do a reissue on is an album by uh, Ronnie Laws. Mm -hmm. I think it's called... Is it pressure sensitive? I can't remember. There's a picture of an egg on the cover. Okay. Um, yeah, I've got a copy of that. That's a great record. I cut that originally. I love that. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's, yeah, I wish they would. I mean, the Classic Series has been great. They put out all kinds of interesting things, kind of mixing it, keeping it mixed up. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed that as much as. Man. I'm sorry? The, the Classic Series records, just a lot of them just sound incredible. Thank you. It's amazing for the price. 
yeah. At that point, it's just there. No, there's nothing else out there like it. I don't think. Yeah, it's pretty hard. I think it's one of the best bang for the bucks ever. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they're selling the um, the OJCs for, but uh, but that's been really fun too. They're probably not as cheap as the classics, right? Because they're pressing an RTI. They're not, they're not yeah. for, I think. Yeah. I think yeah, maybe just under forty or something. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that seems to be the new price point for audiophile records. Forty bucks. Right. Right. But you know, we're happy to pay. Honestly, I mean these records like these OJCs, like the tone poets, the thing I like about them is I can buy it and I'm never going to buy another copy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like the, the y'all are going to make some massive improvement in the next 20 years. It's going to compel me to spend another 50 bucks to buy another copy of the, those records. It'll be a hundred by then. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm already off that at all records. So, you know, <laughs> oh, that's what's so great. Like, you know, people, sometimes the a, a release will come out and they'll be like, well, you can get an original of that for ten bucks. Well, you're not going to get a mint original. If you're going to find a mint original of this for ten bucks, right? Okay, now I, I'm going to call you guys out on something here. Okay, so I went back the other day and I started watching a couple of the old, older ones that you did, and I was really surprised. You guys did a thing on, on the the OJC series, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and but you were mostly talking about. Well, I didn't buy it because I have this. I have my original. And, you know, each of you guys, it's like you mm-hmm. weren't really talking about the sound of the reissues. I thought that was kind of funny. But uh, trying to remember, I'm actually conflicted. So they're they're putting out the new Bill Evans uh, Village Vanguard, Sunday uh-huh. Village Vanguard, and then Waltz for Debbie. Right. I have the OJC. I have I have all eleven OJCs of Bill Evans, and you know I love them, and they're great. And I guess my point is that. The the amount of like uh, benefit from getting this because I'm sure it will sound better. I'm you know I'm almost certain of that. I haven't heard it, but I'm sure it's going to sound great. But that eighty dollars for those two records, I could get a new record, you know, for that. Oh, I'm not I, arguing with that. That was it's just that it was oh, sort yeah. of like a clickbait thing where you think you're going to be hearing you guys talk about the sound of those, and there was almost <sighs> no talk. Before they even came out, though, yeah, but it may—I don't remember the. It may have been a clip of a live stream, which those—if there was a lot of people on the panel, those things get like crazy, and they just go all directions. Yeah, so, I don't remember who all was on this but, particular. One. No, I bought the first two, and they're amazing. I love them. The two Mormons, though, me and Felipe bought the Riverside box, yeah, the forty-five. So I'm not gonna. I don't think I'm gonna rebuy those. Which that box sounds. You you recut some of that stuff, didn't you? Yeah, but I didn't do the box. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I think Bernie did that. I could be wrong. Okay, that makes sense. I'm just saying, I'm not gonna. I, I was, you know, we spent 900 bucks for that freaking thing. I'm probably not gonna buy another copy of those records. I don't think. But those for those other two, what was it? The um, the, the Monk Coltrane. Uh huh. Sounds phenomenal. I love that. Yeah, record. I like I like the Miles Davis monos too. Those were those were those great. Are good. Those are great. Yeah. I I love, that's some of my very favorite Miles Davis. So you've cut a bunch of stuff for OJC then already. Oh, yeah. I've probably mastered 20 titles already at least. Wow. I don't know how many they put out. but I think four so far, four or five. Oh, That's really? Great, though. We're loving that series. Well, yeah. I'm not going to talk about the ones I've done then. But, yeah. but you know kind of what they are, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's not a big secret. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're reading the cats next, and there's a record that everybody wants. And oh, uh, love that record! So Absolutely, represses, right? Love that record. Yeah, so righteous and represses with those. So and Mal too. I mean, I think yeah, yeah. they're sitting yeah. on some of the best uh, jazz records. So. Yeah, no, that's that's been 
almost as fun as doing the blue notes. You know, yeah. not, you know yeah. half the fun of, of doing the tone poets is working with Joe, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's a but, kick. But Kevin, uh, did you ever work with the muse label? Muse? Yeah. Mm, maybe. Not that I recall the name. Because those are the ones that really deserve a reissue. They're so great. The, the free jazz, but post bop seventies. They have the, the best stuff out there. Yeah, I don't think I've done anything for them. I've, I've actually said definitively that I didn't do this or that, and then somebody holds it up and says, "Your name, your initials are in the dead wax." And it's like, uh, okay, <laughs> well, okay. So your calendar year, um, like how many how many records do you cut per year? Uh, you know, estimate wise. Last year. Uh, 2022, I, I did just under 400 titles. I did 385 wow. titles, I think. And this year will be a little bit less, but not a whole lot less. Okay. You know, uh, up until that time, I was doing averaging a little over 300. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, it was a busy year last year. It was just nuts. Incredible. I hit the ground running in January with a 60 LP side backlog. <laughs> which is not a fun way to start the year. <laughs> well, all right. Well, look, thank you so much for coming. Does anybody have any final questions for Kevin? Oh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. No, thank you for my pleasure. Yeah, thank I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely, Kevin, very, very thankful for your time and uh, for such a great conversation with us. Yeah. And, and for our viewers, if you let us know your thoughts about the conversation, we'd you know, love to hear your comments, like and subscribe, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Kevin, you're welcome back here. If you want to promote anything, if you want to talk about anything, we would love to follow up and, and continue the conversation. Well, so, when, the, when the record's ready to release, whatever month that is, oh, <laughs> we, yeah, we can talk about that again. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll reach out for, for sure. All right. All right. All right, guys. All right. Thank thanks, you. Kevin. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. You too. Take care. Bye.